You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. People who are living on those unemployment benefits and associated payments have been falling further below the poverty line as every year increases. What could you do? We just saw what you can do. If you raise the unemployment benefit and associated uh, benefits you will lift an enormous number of people out of poverty. That happened with the coronavirus supplement. And what we risk now is pushing those people back into poverty. Uh, it's very hard to understand why that wouldn't be a big priority. to Unemployed, Unemployed Workers, Workers Fight Back. 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 Join your hosts, Anne. And Kevin, that's me. The second and fourth Friday of each month on The Sewer Show. Between 5.30 and 6.30pm. Here on 3CR Community Radio. Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone, Everyone in, in our community, community has value. value. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on this Friday the 22nd of July. Mm -hmm. It's been so bloody cold that everything just sort of freezes and and you don't know time freezes (laughs) and and everything freezes. Anyway, look, uh, um, uh, what do we have planned to speak about this week? And what's what's on the agenda? Uh, Well, Kevin, I'm a little bit preoccupied at the moment with the uh, changes that are going on with our social security system, particularly as it relates to unemployment benefits which, of course, is what people who aren't working get. Maybe many sole parents get it and people with disabilities rely on these benefits. Job seeker is still only $45 a day and $36 a day if you're a younger person. Tony Wren, Executive Director of Anti-Poverty Week, speaking at the National Press Club of Australia in November 2021. That's well below the poverty line, $65 a day. It's $165 a week below the age pension, which nobody thinks is too generous. There's over a million people receiving those payments and for every single one of them, they're living in poverty. If you're sick, including if you're having cancer treatment, there's no sickness benefit in Australia. You're on JobSeeker. People who have a disability or an impairment increasingly now have to also go on JobSeeker. So around 34% of people on JobSeeker now actually have a disability or an impairment. We've also got a lot of older women and men who've been laid off later in their working lives. And of course, we've got single parents with a child over the age of eight years, predominantly mothers, because as we know, poverty is gendered like violence in this country. There's no parenting payment for those families. It's job seeker. And the big change that's coming through, it's a change in what they call the employment services industry or the employment services system. And 
The way the system works is that the government has a contract and it asks people to supply these so-called services and these agencies or providers, they compete to get the contracts and their clients are the unemployed people who are coerced (laughs) into dealing with these agencies on threat of not getting their money. And, you know, you and I often talk about how governments create markets. Mm-hmm. And this is a really clear example of how government creates a market because it does this through the contract and uses its fiscal capacity, which is its ability to spend money into existence. I'm not imagining this, Kevin, <laughs> because back in 1996, when the whole thing was first privatized, the federal government back then was even calling it a new quasi-market framework for the delivery of employment services. So they do consciously think of it as a market. So in all the discussion around this new contract, in the process of seeing a thing called Workforce Australia come into effect, I don't hear very many people talking about the underlying framework that this is all sitting in. So there's talk of automation and talk of tweaking the system, but the fundamentals are not changing. And those fundamentals, Kevin, I made a list. You made a list, yep. (laughs) So I've got my four aspects of this market, and these four things are my reasons for why it's going to stay a very dysfunctional system, by which I mean it's going to continue to abuse all those people who are relying on these payments. So we've got the privatization, which you mentioned. Mm -hmm. We've also got marketization, and we'll come back to what that is. And then there's this other thing going on, which is monopsony. Monopsony. (laughs) It's a great word. Monopsony. Monopsony. You'll have to to run through that one with me, Anne. (laughs) I keep thinking of a little song, you know, monopsony. Monopsony. And then the last thing is this activation model. Now, none of that's going to change, and there are four things that I'm thinking are going to keep this thing terribly dysfunctional. Let's go through privatisation. So in the last few decades, uh, one of the pillars of neoliberalism is this thing called privatisation, which I think of as uh, selling off or contracting out public services or public assets. So in this case, what they did is they contracted out the provision of employment services. So we're talking about the privatisation of the unemployment uh, services, which of course used to be run by the Commonwealth Employment Services. It was a government-run body, as it is in most places in the world. Australia, for some reason, has decided to privatise these services. Exactly. We've got one of the, the more neoliberal agendas when it comes to our unemployed. It's um, pure neoliberalism, our employment services. And so what they had to do was build this market framework and then put this aspect of social services into this framework. So what they're doing when they make this framework is that they're trying to write some rules so that they're going to get certain behaviours that they want. And they want the employment service providers to behave in a certain way and they want the unemployed workers to behave in a certain way. And this is what uh, economists call incentives. So they're writing this market framework to get these incentives. And as far as I can tell, it's almost impossible (laughs) to get the incentives right. So even if you say, 
They really do want to make life very difficult for unemployed workers. They can't even get the market to behave the way they want it because, for one thing, they're introducing a profit motive into the social services sector and no longer running the sector according to the public good. So they're running it for profit instead of running it as a serious service to help people get work. How can you run an unemployment service for profit? <laughs> like, it, it falls under the welfare banner. We're, we're trying to yeah. help out people who haven't got work. If you haven't got work, you're not making money. How can you make profit off people who aren't making money? Well, that's a good question. It's <laughs> the same question you could ask of how can they privatise, for example, the prison system. Well, I, I can see how they can privatise it, but I, I can't see how you can make a profit from that. Like you privatise the prison system rather than having government employees do it, you, you subcontract it out to some firm. So the government pays them rather than paying the uh, government employed people instead. It's still going to cost you money. You're not going to make money. It's not going to be profitable. You're always going to lose money, but you're now losing money to the private sector as opposed to the public <laughs> sector. How can you profit out of putting people in jail? These aren't profit-driven well, ventures. Well, this is what they've done. When they privatise the whole social services sector, what they're doing is they're saying these companies providing the services are making a profit, but as you say, the government's still paying for it. So privatisation, that's part of the problem. The second thing is this marketization, and they always talk about marketizing this industry. And basically what that means is that they've introduced both this profit motive, so these agencies are needing to make a profit, and also these agencies are competing with each other. So they've introduced this idea of competition, and what they're doing is they're competing with each other for the government contract. Now, what's been really interesting to see over the past couple of decades is that like any market, this market has tended towards monopoly. So a monopoly, as most people realize, is when you've got a whole bunch of people wanting to buy a good or a service, but you've only got one person providing the service. And so they started out with 300-odd agencies and the whole selling point on this was there was going to be all this variety of all these different agencies competing with each other. But what ends up happening is that the big agencies drive out the smaller ones who really know their local area, they know the people, they know the community, and you end up with these big multinational corporations. Which again, is that is the very model of neoliberalism where the successful ones buy up the less successful ones, or maybe you, you set yourself up to be bought and it gets condensed down into fewer and fewer players, this is neoliberalism 101. Oh, absolutely. That's why I just love looking at this as an example of how neoliberalism works. And the interesting thing, especially in the employment services industry, when you say the unsuccessful ones get driven out, they're usually the ones that are really trying to use as many resources as possible to meet the needs of someone who's unemployed because many people do have genuine, what they call, barriers to unemployment. So if you've got a service provider who is actually trying really hard, spending lots of money, trying to do their job properly, it's going to show up on their balance sheet as not being as profitable as somebody who's doing a shit job and is not applying any resources <laughs> and is making lots of money. So, exactly. So, so then the, the but, crappy operator who's more profitable gets to buy out the... Yeah, the, exactly. The, yeah. Exactly. So that's what's gone on for the past couple of decades. The other really interesting thing that's gone on is that 
less and less professional people are employed by these agencies. So people who, for example, are trained as employment counsellors, people who are trained as social workers or psychologists, less and less of them are working in the industry now, one, because they're more expensive to employ, and two, because it's such a crappy environment for these people to work in that they've left in droves because what they find they're doing is they're being asked to punish people at the same time they're being asked to help them. So they're being asked to penalise them if they're not doing the things the government wants them to do. And, of course, most people who go into these professions, they go in with a desire to with help gen- people. genuine intent. Mm-hmm. And they're being told to do things which, by the sounds of it, are against all of their training and understanding of what they should be doing. Yep, yeah. so it's a really unsatisfying workplace for them. So the only people that are going to work in that situation are the, the ones who aren't very good at it. <laughs> so, yeah. well, well, they do end up employing a lot of non-professionals, so people with Cert 4s in something, like right. admin or whatever. I, I tried to get a Cert 4 in building. I might, I might have been <laughs> You might have become a great caseworker, Kevin. I could Kevin. become a caseworker, yeah. And even the non-professional staff, there's a huge turnover rate in this industry, up to 30%. So what that means is that by the end of the year, your organisation would have had one third of your staff walk out the door. <laughs> Where there's high turnover, that's always indicative of, of a work culture that is uh, failing. If, if people like their job, they don't leave. So this is what this government contract and this privatisation and this marketization is creating. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org. What was the third one again? I like that one. That was monopsony. Monopsony. (laughs) That one I'm I'm waiting to hear about. It's a new word for monopsony. Which I had to look up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And what it is, it's the reverse of a monopoly. So in a monopoly, you've got lots of buyers and one seller. And in a monopsony, you've got one buyer and lots of sellers. Mm -hmm. So in this employment services industry, you've got one buyer, which is the government. Right. And then you've got lots of sellers, which are all these agencies who are wanting to sell the service, to sell the service to the government. The really interesting thing about monopsony is that like monopoly, the one buyer gets to call the shots. So they get to say what the price is going to be and how you're going to deliver the service and everything. So that's what the federal government is doing when it has this contract. The really interesting part of it being in employment services is that the government is not only the one buyer in this monopsony, but it is also the regulator of the industry. So it is both the buyer and the regulator. And what that means is that in these two roles, it's got a conflict of interest. So, for example, um, now going back, say, to the marketization, if the government is paying agencies to get people into work, it would seem like a really common sense thing that you might give these agencies a bonus when someone gets a job. The thing is, when they're motivated by the profit motive, they will push people into any job that comes along, regardless of whether that job is suitable for that person's abilities or that person's personal goals. So you hear over and over again, you hear unemployed workers say, I've been forced or coerced into activities and employment that doesn't suit me. And so when that happens, the job agencies can say, well, I was only following orders. 
they can just say, well, we're just following the contract. And the Department of Employment can say, well, we're not giving orders, we're just purchasing services. (laughs) So they're pretending that they're not the regulator when they are both the purchaser and the regulator. So the government effectively has plausible deniability when uh, things go wrong at the coalface between the caseworker and the unemployed worker. So there's no place, this is what they say, when there's no place that accountability resides. So there's actually no recourse for unemployed workers when they're being uh, coerced into things. Sounds like a, a system which is very well set up to cover everybody except for the unemployed. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> The government's arse is covered, the uh, agency's arse is covered, they can all say that they've done the right thing and the unemployed person is still unemployed or unhappily employed in something which is just not suited to them. So point four is that uh, they're still holding on to this activation model which is why I don't see Workforce Australia being much of an improvement over uh, the job active This is point four, activation. Yep, which means that it is part of the design of the system to be a hostile system to unemployed workers. So activation is just this idea that if someone's unemployed, it's either because they're lazy (laughs) or they're not job ready and we've got to get out the cattle prods and activate them. Right, so that's the whole blaming the the victim thing, the person in the situation, which is what we've um, started doing in the last 30 or 40 years. Back in the day when somebody's unemployed, we used to go, oh, you, you poor bugger, let's give you a hand and see what we can do for you. Now now we say, oh, well, it's your own fault, you lazy sod. Um, you deserve everything you haven't got. So this <laughs> is why mutual obligations and a payment rate at half the poverty line are designed to be these cattle prods to get people yeah. into jobs that don't exist. And that whole thing about like the, the payment, they always justify it by saying it's a temporary thing, a temporary um, situation, and this will help motivate you to join a workforce where there's no room for you, or if there is, you're going to push somebody else out of a job, a race to the bottom. And, uh, and temporary, well, people give up because they understand that it's hopeless, and then it becomes permanent. Yes. And, and even if it's temporary, living at half the poverty line... For even a temporary amount of time is not... Is not motivating. It's soul-destroying. Exactly. And more and more people are becoming long-term unemployed, which means over 12 months. Just while we're on this long-term unemployed stuff now, everybody says the unemployment rate is really low and and uh, it's it's a great time if you're looking for a job and you can find whatever job you like and, and increase your pay, etc. That only applies to a section of the community. There's still a whole bunch of people who are casualised, who are working on the gig economy, who are scratching to get by, and, and the, the unemployment figures don't specify mm. this. Uh, they say, oh, you've, you've got a little bit of work here and a little bit of work there, therefore you're employed. you're employed. Yes, technically you've got some casual work here and a gig job there, but you're still struggling to get by. But the stats say that uh, you're doing fine and you're on a great wicket. That's mm. simply not the case for tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of people who are struggling. Yeah. What we're talking about here is a system which is built to fail, uh, and that's because just, there just aren't enough jobs available. That's how the system is structured. It doesn't have to be that way. That's how mm-hmm. it's structured at the moment. The system has, however, been very successful, this, this privatisation, <laughs> but for the wrong people. It's been very successful for the, the, the job service providers, some of who have become very rich, uh-huh. but it hasn't been very um, successful for the uh, the people trying to get a bloody job. No. Um, 
So in this switch from the Job Active contract to the Workforce Australia contract, one of the big changes is going to be automation. And as far as I can see, all they're going to do is exacerbate the existing problems with, you know, this possibility that people will just hear, computer says no. Yep. <laughs> if you're going to get told no, I'd rather get told by a computer than a person. Because when, <laughs> when I deal with a reasonable, rational human being who, who should should have the ability to uh, to understand the nuances and, and they start talking to me like they're a computer without a, without a mind, I, I lose it. I've never been good with that, Anne, I've got to say. It drives me to distraction. I have to say, I'll take the person over the algorithm any day. It, it depends. If, if the person turns into an algorithm... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like, uh, yeah, rock in a hard place. So... In an effort to think about this change in the way unemployment benefits are delivered, I did manage to speak with Associate Professor Elise Klein, who is there in Canberra at the Australian National University. So today I'm very excited to be able to speak with Elise Klein, who is an Associate Professor and Senior Lecturer at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University in Canberra. And for people who might not know your work, can I just get you to say something briefly about your areas of interest, particularly from the point of view of unemployed workers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my background was in development studies, so I have a deep concern around justice and have been watching for quite some time around how this idea of work and particularly employment as a key institution of development and of so-called developed societies Mm -hmm. um, fails a lot of people. Uh, And so my research looks at how that is the case and its sort of interaction with the social security system. Well, I would say... Uh, any level of mass unemployment is a system failure. So I'm so glad somebody like you is looking at that. Oh, absolutely. So I might just take us back in time, back to March 2021. And in this day and age of the 24-7 news cycle, I know it's quite radical to be going back over a year. (laughs) (laughs) But if we cast our minds back then, uh, you co-authored a report called Social Security and Time Use During COVID-19. And that report came out at a very interesting time because it was when the coalition government introduced a payment known as the coronavirus supplement, and that effectively doubled the unemployment rate. And then they took it away again. Uh, yeah. We will give them some credit. They, the coalition government did make the first increase to the base rate of unemployment benefits in 27 years. And they did that by $3.57 a day. And we could compare that to the coronavirus supplement, which effectively doubled the unemployment rate by $39 a day. So they did a little bit of a, a squeak of an increase in the pay rate. But what was interesting about that moment is how the rate came and went away again. Just wondering how uh, the research that you did, that you published in this report, how did that take advantage of this unique situation? So it was a really um, important moment because, you know, for so many, like decades, there's been both Labor and Liberal governments in Australia 
having a commitment to punitive approaches to social security. So, you know, mutual obligations and, um, and like you said, haven't raised the rate in real terms since, you know, the 90s. And that has not kept up, of course, with the cost of living. So a lot of people find themselves well below the poverty line. And it's just a very mean system. And that's part of the punitive idea that you sort of create hostile conditions that is meant to propel people into the labour force. But of course, there's not enough jobs or you don't have an ability to work or, you know, because you're doing care work, which is work, and you're doing other forms of work, you can't um, do employment at the same time. Like there's many different reasons why people might need some support. Mm. So when COVID hit, the federal government did something really quite extraordinary. For a six-month period, it suspended mutual obligations and it paid a lot of people who were on Social Security, but not everyone, so people with disability payments didn't get the coronavirus supplement, but it was this $550 supplement, which, as you said, really changed how much people had available per day quite significantly it was such an unprecedented shift given what had happened up until that point. So colleagues and I did an online survey. I mean, look, there's probably deeper methods you could use if you had time, but it just happened so quickly. And we Mm -hmm. just knew this was such an important natural experiment, if you could sort of use that term to say, we've got to understand what this meant for people. Natural experiments They are the economist's equivalent of a laboratory experiment, but they occur in the real world. Andrew Charlton, speaking at the National Press Club of Australia in November 2021, six months before he was elected as the Labor MP for the seat of Parramatta. The pandemic was an incredible natural experiment that taught us a lot about economics in Australia and particularly about poverty in Australia. So folks were really um, uh, generous with their time and they did this survey. And we had people from across Australia gave really interesting and important responses um, and really showed how life-changing, one, to, to get the increased supplement, but two, not to have to deal with mutual obligations. You know, people talked about not having to ration um, food and medicine just to keep their heads just above water, um, being able to do things for their kids just made that care work so much easier. People also talked about how it helped them actually engage more with the labour market because it gave people space and time but also resources. Just struggling below the poverty line, like that really makes it hard to, you know, get a CV together, pay for bus fare to a job interview, um, have clothes for a job interview. Having that supplement really helped. And then the other important thing that people reflected on was Uh, the support to engage in other forms of work. So not just in the labour market, but community work, volunteering, advocacy work, which, you know, is really important too, because it sort of flies in the face of, you know, dole bludger and these horrible Mm -hmm. tropes that have been used. I mean, the truth is, is that people are doing huge amounts of contribution to society and the supplement, as well as the, the extra time and not having to deal with mutual obligations, Uh, really helped people to do that important work. So I think it was very rich, the kind of data that came out. 
And it really pushed against this yeah, long-held view that you've got to have hostile conditions um, and that's going to push people into the labour market. The truth is, is that people are already working and when people are given a bit more support, they are able to have a bit of time and space and resourcing to engage in the labour market. Yeah, really interesting results. So it sounds like nobody said it helped me enhance my dull bludging abilities. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I, I think, I mean, people talked about feeling human again, feeling mm. dignified again. People talked about their mental health improving mm. um, and feeling, yeah, that they could finally breathe. I mean, all of this language I'm using now come directly from quotes that people shared. And I think what it does is exposes just how horrible, how hostile, how mean Mm -hmm. the current system is. Uh, People did not speak highly of the job agencies at all. So when the mutual obligations got taken away, they talked about having time back, time to think about how they wanted to engage with the labour market. And then that was backed up with support in terms of the supplement. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But... Don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au Out of that survey, your report made four recommendations. And what I might do is just read through the list and then we can unpack some of those recommendations which seem to come out what people were saying. Um, Here are the recommendations. One was increase the rate of unemployment benefits to above the poverty line. Two was replace mutual obligations with a voluntary system of support. The third one was reform the social security system so that it recognises that formal paid employment is only one form of productivity. I'm very curious to hear more about that. And then there was also a recommendation about including the social security receipt in the ABS time use survey. Now, the first one just seems so obvious to me. It almost doesn't need talking about, but do you have anything more to add about why you would say increase the rate above the poverty line? Uh, I mean, what a huge difference having the supplement made to people's lives. Associate Professor Elise Klein. People who don't understand the social security system or haven't engaged with it on a personal level might not realise just how nasty and harsh it is and how really those payments are not enough. I mean, people reporting about having to ration food. I I distinctly remember a a quote from a, a mother talking about having to ration um, bottle milk for her baby. Wow. Um, 
I mean, it's just unbelievable. In this day and age in Australia, it's unbelievable we're forcing people to make those decisions. Absolutely. And I think that goes to also how um, it's not just the adults being punished, but it's their children too. You know, lots of responses from parents in the survey around, I was able to get a present for my child's birthday, or I was able to get them a tutor for um, their maths and to help them at school. A dignified participation in the economy, not just clinging on by, by your fingertips. I was just wondering if there was any talk in your report about uh, if we do increase the rate of payments about how the payments are indexed, which is at the root of the problem for why the unemployment benefits did not keep up with, say, the aged pension. They started in the same place a couple of decades ago, and then the unemployment rates fell behind because of how they are indexed, and uh, they were not indexed to wage increases. Yeah. So, increased and linked to indexation, as you say. I think that's that's right. There was research by other um, researchers at the ANU at that time that these payments came in that talked about that uh, poverty rates fell for people on JobSeeker from 67% to 7% when people got the supplement. For policy to have that profound impact into people's lives, um, it makes you wonder how they could have taken it away again. Mm. And, you know, the supplement made a huge difference in people's lives, but it only brought people back to the poverty line. We must um, remember that, mustn't we? Yeah, it wasn't that, that people were being paid, you know, huge amounts of money. It wasn't lavish. It was just enough that they didn't have to ration food or medicine. Or they could keep up with bills. They could keep a roof over their head. Basic needs. Imagine if suddenly overnight we could have a big increase in the unemployment benefit and observe the consequences. Well, we had precisely this natural experiment during the pandemic. Overnight, unemployment benefits were doubled in Australia. Andrew Charlton, speaking at the National Press Club of Australia in November 2021, six months before he was elected as the Labor MP for the seat of Parramatta. So what happened? Well, data from Accenture and Illion, taken with the permission from bank accounts of more than 250,000 Australians, enabled us to observe the actual spending of people who received extra money. And the data is clear. Of the extra $550 a fortnight, the coronavirus supplement, the largest amount, $85, was spent on household bills, electricity, phone, water, $70 of that extra money was spent on food. Around $60 was spent on clothing and household goods. Around $175 was saved or used to pay down debt. What we saw is that for the people who received that extra money, it was life-changing. Hundreds of thousands of people were lifted out of poverty. They didn't spend that money on frivolous or discretionary items. They didn't withdraw from the labour market. They spent it well on their families and bills. So the natural experiment of the pandemic, it taught us that giving more money to lower income people has many positive benefits, both to them and to the community. You know, I I hope that we get to the situation where we can recognise that lesson of the pandemic and use it to inform better, more generous and ultimately more effective welfare policies going forward. 
I think we have decades of scholarship uh, provided to us on a platter from the natural experiments in the pandemic. And we can only hope and wish and encourage our governments and our bureaucrats to do more evidence-based policymaking. This taking away of the payment, from our point of view on this show, we follow modern monetary theory, which is a school of economics that talks about the capacity of the federal government to spend money. And we look at the federal government as the currency issuer. So whenever you have a gap or an undersupply or you need to, as they say, mobilise your resources, the Australian federal government can always spend that money. So it's not like they don't have the money to spend. (laughs) So when they increased the payment, the coalition government did that very reluctantly. And I think part of the reason was because one of the things that revealed certainly to us was how the government does not need to tax and it does not need to borrow in order to make the payments. And when it creates a deficit by making those payments, that's just the money supply. It's not money that needs to be paid back to anyone. (laughs) Like all budgetary decisions are choices and the government is happy to give these stage three tax cuts, which will hugely benefit the rich end of town. And that's not even, you know, much of a political issue, but Mm. yet helping people who are structurally unemployed. And I think that's the point. You know, there's been a shift over the last 20 years of people understanding employment as a behavioural deficit. But Mm -hmm. the truth is people are structurally unemployed, that either there are not enough jobs, which was, of course, the case with COVID, but it's still the case now, and or that people have other work that they have to do, such as unpaid caring work, So um, the social security system is there because we recognise that unemployment is structural. Let's get to the second of your recommendations here, which I was quite intrigued by, which was replace mutual obligations with a voluntary system of support. So what does that voluntary system of support look like? This report came through the Treating Families Fairly Coalition of wonderful organisations that do really important work. So they're all deliberated. And I think there is an important argument that talks about, you know, if people wanted to engage with the labour market or needed support, that there might be certain ways in which community-based, community-run, community-led organisations could provide scaffolding to help people if they wanted it. The kind of thinking that we had around that was definitely, you know, unpicking, getting rid of the current sort of industry, the job agency industry that we have. So completely voluntary and nothing like the current system of of mutual obligation. Mm. I think that's what I was so pleased to see, which is, This recommendation is one of the clearest articulations I've seen of an alternative to this system, which is about punishing and conjoling unemployed workers. Mm. It's what I understand is called an activation model, which was introduced in Australia back in the early 1990s. And I think it even came out of international research. And so given that what you're recommending here does fly in the face of this Uh, activation model, which I think only a sociopathic economist could have ever come up with it. 
Um, and Absolutely. It- and most of it was designed on sort of abstracted data sets in Europe. So not actually from granular level lived experience of people who might find themselves unemployed, but just abstractive econometric data, basically. So very disconnected from reality, but yet it's had such political currency over the last two decades. So I guess that's the issue is uh, whether we can move our current government away from seeing this framework as offering any kind of real assessment of what's going on. Because of course, Mm -hmm. as you said, this framework assumes that it's something that's wrong with the person versus the system. And on this show, we see the problem with the system is that there are not enough jobs. And we see that as a result of um, not enough, as the economists say, not enough aggregate demand. So government basically is not spending enough So fascinating to me that you're moving into a completely different framework for viewing um, unemployment. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Let's move on to the third recommendation that you have, which is reform the social security system so that it recognises that formal paid employment is only one form of productivity or work. And I just love this one as well, but do tell us more. (laughs) I mean, this is, um, if anyone really understands the economy, then this is like very straightforward. Unfortunately, a lot of economists completely overlook this point, is that the economy and capitalism um, is underpinned by huge amounts of unpaid work that keeps people alive, well, cared for, supported, growing, connected um, and emotionally okay. You know, a lot of that is understood as care work, unpaid care work, of course, raising kids, but also looking after the elderly, but also community work, um, artistry, the work of creatives, the vast work of volunteers, advocacy, the political work, the work that people do to keep the civic space and democracy well and and, and good. Mm -hmm. All of that is really critical work and capitalism cannot function without these forms of work. So what is really important to, to say is that and it shouldn't require pointing this out, is how much work people who have social security payments do and and huge amounts that are extremely valuable to the sort of production economy, what people think as the sort of main formal economy. But I'm saying work is much broader than that. And unfortunately, this idea of that weaponised Stigma um, has completely overshadowed how important the contributions people are making to the economy and society. And so that's why the recommendation is there is to completely rewrite that stigma um, and tell the truth. So if we did make the assumption that uh, unemployed workers and, you know, all citizens are contributing as much as they can. And I have to admit, in my own experience, I have yet to meet anyone on unemployment benefits who is not doing anything to contribute to the people around them. So if we were starting on that assumption, how would the system look if it's recognising that? 
I'm a big supporter of the basic income, the universal basic income, because people should just have an economic floor and um, economic security should be disentangled from contribution because we're all contributing as much as we can and in the various ways in which we can. And so therefore, we should decouple economic security from this idea of work and contribution. And then, of course, I think it's important to acknowledge that if you have a disability, for example, a base rate is never going to be enough. So there should be extra supports there, housing allowances and things like that. Absolutely. We're going to have to get you back on the show, Elise, because we follow more the job guarantee line where we would say that we would want to see universal basic services. So like guaranteed housing, guaranteed healthcare, et cetera. And then the income side of it would be through the job guarantee rather than the universal basic income. So we'll have to we'll have to get you back on the show and talk more about that one. Let's get on to the fourth one because the first three, they just make my heart glow just yeah. talking about these. So the fourth Great. one must be important too, but I did not understand it. Why is it so important to add a question about social security receipt in the Australian Bureau of Statistics time use survey? And just in case people don't know, the ABS or the Australian Bureau of Statistics, they're the ones beavering away and figuring out what the unemployment rate is and what the underemployment rate is. So they produce all this data that researchers like you are using. So do tell us why this is so important. Data, I think, is important to make visible often what some policy positions try to make invisible. Um, And so having more visibility in the sets of questions in the time you survey around social security receipt. So it's not just you're keeping your diary of time use, but also having better um, data around interactions with social security would be super important to help us to see the lengths and the depth of what I've just been talking about is how productive and how much contribution people who have payments, social security payments, are making. And that would counter those myths around dole bludging. I too. And I just wonder if you have any sense of the current government, how they might view your findings, which there was this natural experiment which showed what a dramatic improvement they would make to the life of the people in this country. What could you do? We just saw what you can do. If you raise the unemployment benefit and associated uh, benefits, you will lift an enormous number of people out of poverty. That happened with the coronavirus supplement. And what we risk now is pushing those people back into poverty. Andrew Charlton, speaking at the National Press Club of Australia in November 2021, six months before he was elected as the Labor MP for the seat of Parramatta. The Australian Financial Review describes Charlton as a centrist, evidence-based, data-driven economist with entrepreneurial flair. From December 2007 to June 2010, Charlton served as the Chief Economic Advisor to Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. This was during the GFC, or Global Financial Crisis, during which Charlton helped oversee Australia's response to the crisis. Uh, it's very hard to understand why that wouldn't be a big priority. Look, I, I want to be hopeful and, you know, Albanese, he talks about his childhood with a single mom, 
Um, I have not seen to date a commitment to reforming the punitive, hostile nature of the social security system. They've promised to scrap the cashless debit card. I don't know if that also means getting rid of the basics card as well. Um, But I'm also worried that they're not going to hold true to that, that they might get rid of some parts of the cashless debit card. But just to say that they only started really making this like front and centre of their platform when they're able to politicise that with the idea that the pensioners might be put onto the cashless debit card. The cashless debit card's been around for six years and um, we haven't seen that much. You know, there's been people in the Labor Party that have wanted it gone but not the party position against it uh, in in that strength for, for some time. They've also talked about not raising the rate. They're about to unveil the new Workforce Australia program, which was from the government before. It looks like they're continuing it. I don't see much movement uh, in the social security system, I hate to say. And and therefore, you know, I, I think we have to mobilise, we have to work together and we have to keep pushing for a better social security system for everybody and that work is still ahead of us. Yeah, we still have our work cut out for us. Um, has Tony Burke seen your report? I might have to send it to him. <laughs> oh, please do. I would be. I, I doubt he's seen it. Um, we try to get it in front of the past government. I'm not sure how much Labor has engaged with it, but I think the issue with Labor is they're so focused on what they like to call real jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, they've really got to uh, unpick that to see that work is much broader than you know nine to five. And look. It's great if you can get that and you enjoy it and it's working for you, you get paid a decent wage, great. But the majority of people, um, well, I think it's about 50%, don't have that experience and therefore we need to be thinking a bit more creatively. Mm. Well, absolutely. So so when we get a chance, I'd love to talk to you about the job guarantee because I would see that as offering a socially inclusive wage to do all those things that you were talking about, like civic engagement, care work and uh, creative work as well. I think there's a lot of crossover. I don't think, you know, the job guarantee, basic income, there is some grey areas and we've just worked on a piece of the livable income guarantee, which the Greens are taken and have expanded on in their policy platform. But, yeah, I wouldn't say it's at odds with the job guarantee or at odds with basic income. So we could talk about that. So thank you so much for your time, Elise, and for all the good work you're doing. And I hope we get a chance to chat again soon. Wonderful. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Bill Mitchell. You're listening to my favourite Melbourne radio station, 3CR, with Anne and Kev, Unemployed Workers Fight Back Program. Great program. Great guests. So as we heard from Elise, what she was doing with this research, she was taking advantage of this thing, which is a natural experiment. And I had to go and wiki this one as well. And a natural experiment is a phenomenon where the researchers aren't actually conducting the experiment. And the reason they don't is because either it would be impossible to do so or unethical to do so. But every now and then circumstances happen and usually it's when something is introduced and then it has an effect for a while and then it goes away again. So it's a real-life experience. It's a real-life experiment. Right. And then the researchers swoop in and try and figure out what went on. So they don't have to set it up. They just observe what really happened. 
and that's called a natural experiment. A natural oh, experiment. That makes sense. And this coronavirus supplement, it was only in place for about six months. So it came in and then it went away again. And, of course, then researchers like Elise went, woohoo, we've got a natural experiment here to see what happens when you start paying unemployed workers a bit better and when you take away all these onerous tasks. I guess we have the coalition government to thank for doing this natural experiment for us. Yeah. What they did was that they helped us to prove once and for all (laughs) that increasing the rate of unemployment payments to at least the poverty line, is actually money well spent. Increasing the rate of uh, unemployment support to the poverty line helps people. Well, now, who'd have thunk it, eh? And not only that, it's money well spent in the sense that it is supporting unemployed workers to do the things uh, which Elise found in her research that does contribute to the community, that is productive. I guess, as the economists would say, that it's money that mobilises an underused resource. When you're living at half the poverty line, you have to spend a lot of time trying to exist, which means you have to spend uh, time looking for cheap alternatives to things like food, rent. You're often uh, shifting around accommodation because it might be too expensive to stay at this place. You can do it for a while. So you're on the move, you're looking for cheap food, which means you've got to scout about, you've got a car, something's broken, you have to go around all the second-hand places, you have to work on the car yourself because you can't afford a mechanic. It's quite time-consuming trying to survive is, on half the, half the poverty level. Mm. Being in survival mode is very time-consuming. Yeah. So this money was pulling people out of that survival mode. Now we have the actual data for what you would think is common sense, right? And the other thing, of course, that you and I have discussed around the coronavirus supplement before is that we can thank the coalition government for proving once and for all that when the federal government spends money, they did not have to go into some savings account. They actually created that money when they spent it. And you can see that they weren't going off and borrowing it from rich people. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't have to collect, collect tax beforehand. They didn't have to go and borrow it from the Chinese. Uh, it, it, they just create it on a computer like they always do and send it out into the economy. That's right. Yeah. So this whole idea that taxes and borrowing is essential for government spending, we've said it a thousand times in the show, we'll keep on saying it. It's, it's nonsense. It is not required. How do we know this? Because... They just did it again. It's not like the first time. They did it during World War II. They did it during the global financial <laughs> crisis. They've just done it again through the pandemic, uh, and they do it all the time. Yeah. Every time they spend money, they're creating money, and the coronavirus supplement was a great example of how they do that. So thank you, coalition government. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we only have to hope that the Labor government will see some sense and not just do the tweaking but actually get into the guts of the privatised employment services system And maybe they'll even wake up and see that a job guarantee is the best way to handle both unemployment and inflation at the same time. That would be nice. What could you do? We just saw what you can do. If you raise the unemployment benefit and associated uh, benefits, you will lift an enormous number of people out of poverty. That happened with the coronavirus supplement. And what we risk now is pushing those people back into poverty. Andrew Charlton, speaking at the National Press Club of Australia in November 2021, six months before he was elected as the Labor MP for the seat of Parramatta. Uh, It's very hard to understand why that wouldn't be a big priority. 
the good news that I'm also noticing that the Labor government's doing is that they are probably going to call a halt to the cashless welfare, which... Oh, that is good, yeah. No, I think they understood the Indu card to be an absolute rort. Uh, my understanding was that the organisation that, that ran the Indu card were heavy donators to the, the Liberal Party. Surprise, the, surprise. That it was a circular thing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you provide this service and then you donate a whole bunch of money to us. It, it, it just And too bad if it's a patronising restriction of people's ability uh, to survive on welfare. So bad. So, again, another good thing that Labor's done. Not everybody loves Labor, but um, I love having Labor in, in power rather than the coalition. And if we can work upwards from there, then good. Well, we'll keep the pressure on them to head in the right direction. What could you do? We just saw what you can do. Anyway, we're running out of time, and as per usual, we've got uh, Mafalda coming up next with Vicky with her Chilean show. Mm-hmm. So we need to skedaddle, make room for her. Um, see you again in a couple of weeks. See you then, Kevin. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no, no, the pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. And I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.